Welcome to episode 7 of the Seasoning the Reasoning podcast. I'm Harry Sewell. My special guest today is Dr. Shubalade Smith, known as Lade. Lade is a consultant psychiatrist at the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust and visiting senior lecturer at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, King's College London. She graduated in medicine from Guy's Hospital Medical School London, winning prizes in psychological medicine. Having trained in psychiatry, she is now a forensic psychiatrist. She is clinical director of forensic services at SLAM. She is also the clinical director of the National Collaborating Centre for Mental Health at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, providing medical leadership for the team developing mental health guidelines. Dr. Smith was awarded a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours in June 2019 for services to forensic intensive psychiatry care. In November 2019, she was awarded Psychiatrist of the Year by the Royal College of Psychiatrists and recently featured in HSJ's list of 100 influential BAME leaders. Hi Lade, great to see you again. Um, it seems some time since we, some time ago, since we were um, working on the review of the Mental Health Act. And I kind of thought it was really serendipitous that this appointment had been put in the diary in December. Um, and then it just so happened that today it coincided with the launch online uh, of the white paper of the review of the Mental Health Act. So yeah, in, interesting, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. Thanks very much for asking me to do this. And yes, you're right. Serendipity is, is definitely the word because I think they only decided quite last minute actually to launch it today. So that's great. Oh, great. Thanks. And um, well, in this series, we kind of look at subjects related to issues of social justice. And, you know, of course, um, you know, you work in psychiatry and, you know, have played a role in trying to kind of shape the future of psychiatry and mental health services more broadly in its response to people of minoritized backgrounds or racialized backgrounds or BAME, you know, so many terms people use. Um, and I was kind of struck that there's often a criticism of the medical model uh, in mental health. And um, I wondered what you thought about the merits of that as a, a challenge that you... Yeah, so uh, I'll be honest with you. I think um, that challenge is often made by people who perhaps don't will have have limited understanding of uh, the training of psychiatrists and what we do. So I have been doing psychiatry for twenty eight years, and uh, certainly in my training and the training of my colleagues, it was very much uh, what I would call a biopsychosocial model, actually. And in fact, uh, you know, the big debates when I was training, growing up in psychiatry, were really between. Um, so-called social psychiatrists and then the more biological psychiatrists but even the biological psychiatrists uh, were looking at psychological processes and how they might link to what might be happening in the brain so there was never this idea that uh, I mean certainly when we were you know trained and still now the, well actually there was always the idea that it was about the whole of a person and how their uh, social situation interacted with their emotional and psychological state and how that might impact on their biological function and how 
biological aspects of their um, physical being impacted on their, um, you know, uh, on their um, uh, psychological state. So, I mean, you know, good example, classic example actually is um, anxiety. When people are anxious, uh, they're, they're, um, you know, there's the psychic anxieties, there's the worry and the ruminations. And that is, uh, you know, linked to an underlying physiological process that includes um, people have, you know, huge amounts of adrenaline and your adrenaline will be, you know, uh, shot out into the bloodstream and that makes your heart race and it makes you have butterflies in your stomach and it makes you feel dizzy and you might get sweating, sweating hands. So the, the psychological processes are intimately linked with the biological ones. And of course, your psych, you know, your psychic anxiety is linked to usually what's going on in your social situation. You know, you're in debt or you're about to get evicted, stuff like that. So the idea that somehow you'd ignore the fact that someone's about to you know, get evicted and ignore the fact that someone feels like an anxious only care about, oh, well, you've got this, you've got a racing heart and you've got butterflies in your stomach, I'm gonna give you some diazepam. It's just a fallacy, actually. So in terms of your question, what do I think are the merits of that, that, that um, challenge? I would say, I think it's based on limited information and I think it's outmoded and out of date. About, uh, certainly in my, in, my, in my experience, it's about 30 years out of date. Oh, wow, okay. And you know, I was kind of really interested in the analogy, or, or it's not even an analogy. It was a you know illustration you gave around anxiety, and that's really helpful. I wondered, and it kind of made me wonder whether or not, when we say biopsychosocial, which kind of effectively puts no weighting on one perspective or another, I wondered whether or not, in reality, in people's lived experience, it feels to them as though it's kind of bio 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 psychosocial or you know whether or not there was some kind of emphasis and one way I kind of explore that question and I'd be really interested in hearing um your response because it might be a really simplistic notion but I kind of imagine in a multidisciplinary meeting before um a discharge or planning for a discharge if someone's accommodation hadn't been secured as in you know their tenancy was arranged but there was just some kind of fine tuning mm -hmm. left um, I could imagine a conversation saying, actually, there's pressure on beds. I understand they've got a cousin. They could kind of, you know, stay with their cousin for a couple of days. And then, you know, they can kind of get their flat because, you know, we've got agreement from the housing association that they'll definitely get the tenancy by, you know, five days time, whatever it is. And we do a stop gap and, you know, the social life wouldn't be that secure. I've heard it. I've seen it. I could imagine that. Um, but I couldn't imagine a circumstance where we might say, well, actually, you know, this person's not going to be able to have access to their medication, you know, for a few days or for a couple of weeks, and we would discharge anyway, um, because there's so much privilege or priority given to the kind of biological side of the supports for individuals. And I wondered whether or not you would recognize that as a, a reasonable way of saying actually there is still quite a lot of priority perhaps understandably from your perspective but a lot more priority given i, I think I, I think actually it's interesting you say that so i'm not sure that's necessarily true because okay. what it what that does is it um i think it is somewhat simplistic because it implies that um because it would be it would be dependent on the individual and it'd be dependent on their medication so for example if if someone needed um a medication 
just as required, PRN. So, uh, you know, for example, paracetamol, you have a headache today you might, or a bit of a pain, you might take it. You don't necessarily need to take it regularly, something like that. Then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be important. But there are some conditions, like, for example, if you have a thyroid disorder, uh, you, ha you have an underactive thyroid, you have to take your medication for the underactive thyroid every single day. You can't miss doses because if you miss doses, then actually it has quite a profound effect on your on your thyroid state. In, actually, thyroid disorder is a really good example. Hypothyroidism is very closely and linked with uh, the development of depression, actually. And in fact, you can get really, really, really severe depression to the extent that people can develop um, uh, psych depressive psychosis and become catatonic. Right, okay. So uh, again, that's one of those kind of biopsychosocial things. The biological bit's really important because if you don't take your regular, um, you know, you have to take thyroxine actually, never mind anything else, but that's you don't take your thyroxine, you'll get ill. But in addition to that, in addition to that, in the case of somebody, you know, needing to, if, if someone's social situation was such, for example, if you said, if we send them to their cousin, then actually that's going to make them deteriorate. They're going to come back into hospital. Then you wouldn't send them to their cousin. But if it was going to be okay, then you would. So I, I think that there's much more nuance and there's much more individual tailing that goes on in the day-to-day -day practical aspects of psychiatry. It's not simply, you've got to take your, I mean, okay, look, there are poor psychiatrists. You might just say, you've got to take your medication. I don't care about whatever else is happening in your life. I don't care about your bereavement. I don't care about your the fact you're living in a car, you know, then that, that would just be poor psychiatry. I think it's unfortunate that um, the bad psychiatry and the bad psychiatrists, and those of you who are gonna say, there are so many of them, I'm sorry if, that, if that's your experience, but um, I would say that, you know, it's, it, all too often poor psychiatry is put up as the example of standard psychiatry. And um, I, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's fair. This is great. Um, and I guess because we've kind of worked together, I feel like I can ask these questions because I'm curious. It's not even as though, you know, I have a preset response I'm trying to evoke. I'm actually kind of really, really curious. Um, because when you said that about the, you know, bad psychiatrist and knowing what you know about how racism is often kind of seen as, oh, but that was just a bad police officer um, in the States. And you might kind of think, well, actually you've got a system that's designed that like, how come you've got so many or, you know, there's something about the protocols or the underlying assumptions mm -hmm. that mean it isn't just, you know, a bad officer because you've got so many of them. I wondered whether or not for people who have experienced, um, you know, I don't know, some disenfranchisement um, in relation to the psychiatric system, whether they would say it's the equivalent that you might say, okay, yeah, you've got one or two, you know, poorly performing individuals, but does that tell us something about the system is my question. I'll tell you what it tells you about the system. It tells you that the system perhaps doesn't have sufficient checks and balances to account for those who don't do their job well. Okay. That, that is a different thing to saying that the system engenders people doing bad things to others. And, and that's, that's important, actually. That's important because all too often, we, the, the assumption is made that actually uh, people who go into the mental, in the mental health system, I'm not just talking about doctors, I'm talking about everybody who works in mental health, uh, is essentially are, are, are a bit psychopathic. If not, you're either a bit psychopathic or very psychopathic, meaning that you're in it to hurt people. I just want to be absolutely clear. It could not be further from the case. 
there is something that happens to people, which is that over time, they become burned out and demoralized. And that is, is actually, effective. The, the, the reason for that is pretty simple. I mean, it doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to some people. And the reason for that is pretty simple, which is that people are, have been, actually, it's very simple, the simple answer is, one in four people have mental health problems. 25% of the population, the adult population has a mental health problem. 11% of the health budget is spent on um, mental health problems. What that tells you is that just in and of itself, people are perhaps doing, have got twice as much demand to deal with. That's 200% of the demand. And, there's a, and, and it means that everybody is constantly firefighting. And, that's, and after a while, when you're constantly firefighting, you don't have enough resources to provide as good a care as you need to then what happens is that you either, you know, walk away from it and don't do it, which unfortunately people do, so we lose good practitioners, or you stay and you get used to, you become inured to, well, this is all we can manage. And I think that there is something, that doesn't mean the system, um, and you know, causes people to, or causes the bad, the bad psychiatry. Well, actually, that's going to put it this way. What it means is that there isn't there, there aren't sufficient checks and balances. It means that people are working in a system that is not sufficiently resourced. That lack of resource means that um, poor poorer practices can almost creep into people's work. I suppose when it comes to if you're if you're um, a racialized minority in mental health services, the biggest problem is where you are. And there's a massive, there's a massive kind of postcode lottery. And even within the same trust, the mental health trust, you could have uh, one service, one unit in the mental health service that is just doing wonderful and lovely things. The unit next door, everybody's burned out and doesn't really care. And you, sometimes you'll see people will say, I was, I was fine. People often say, you know, I really like my doctor. I really like that Dr. Smith, but I don't like that Dr. Jones. And I don't want to go anywhere near Dr. Jones. They're, on, they're working in the, same, in the same area, in the same service. The fact that happens so often tells you that it's, it's, it, 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 there is something about, um, there's something about the individuals, but there's all, there is something about the system, but it's not that the system necessarily, um, you know, uh, engenders or forces or encourages is the word actually encourages people to um, be uh, well be hateful towards others I think the issue is that there aren't sufficient there isn't sufficient resourcing and that can result in really a, almost a, a kind of dim, diminution in what's available in terms of you know psychic resources and everything else You're on mute, Harry. Phrase of the century. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. And yeah, just for the record, for anyone listening, um, you know, the fictional um, names of Dr. Smith, I know you're Dr. Smith, and Dr. Jones that he used were for illustrative purposes only. Just, just, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> just to clarify that, not looking for any libel cases right now. Um, so, okay. That leads, in a way, to the next um, kind of area is kind of looking at racism in mental health. Um, and it's often discussed as, uh, you know, there's racism in society and in people's lives that shows up in their presentations and that there's a correlation, if not a causal relationship between mm. racism and their presentations. And then racism is also discussed 
in relation to an extension of what we're talking about, that actually there's something in the design of psychiatry and of the mental health system more widely that is fundamentally racist. Um, and you'll probably know that you know some of my critique um, kind of leans in that direction. But I was kind of, you know, again, just been really curious to um, see whether or not you think racism shows up in both those ways or... Mm. So I do, I do think it's really, and I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but it's really important to distinguish between the different types of racial discrimination that occur. And, uh, and, I, and I, I know people kind of think, oh, goodness me, goodness me, we surely we know, um, you know, about, we, we know what this is, we know what racism is. Everybody understands that discrimination is when you, um, uh, you know, have prejudice against another another individual and or or not just an individual but you know you have prejudice based on assumptions about the abilities and the motivation intentions of others and um you know it might be according to their uh, gender or their sex um but in our what we're concerned with in our discussion is that there are um assumptions negative assumptions according to people's race and there are different uh, types of racial discrimination and dif you know different types of racism. Uh, I say this because sometimes, well, not sometimes. It's just too often these things are all collated, and um, people need to understand that discrimination means that you you don't just have your prejudice, but you actually um, your behaviour is different against other people because of those negative assumptions, because of those, neg you know, because of those prejudices. And it results in, you know, a lack of respect. These are, these are the kind of individual things, a lack of respect, a devaluation, a, a kind of dehumanizing. And that can be on an individual basis, but it can also be on a group basis. So you literally, for a whole group of people, you don't respect them as much as you might respect another group of people you think that they are less competent as a group so every single individual from that group is also therefore not competent and you don't feel that they are as human as the people from a different group and you know the, so there's the individual and you can that can be on an individual level there's institutional an institutional level and it can be internalized and the institutional, the, the, the more structural racism is when there's differential access for that whole group um, because, because they are from a certain race and it can manifest as a kind of inherited, almost like an inherited disadvantage. And it gets codified into the customs and the practices and the laws, which is why it's often hard to see. It's kind of invisible. But it, in fact, it, it manifests in access to, you know, material conditions. So there's different access, you know, differential access to the to good quality education or sound housing. You know, the, you, you, I think it's really, very much writ large in in um, America, where um, you know whole neighbourhoods are poor, and everybody who lives in that neighbourhood is black. You, you know, and, and that's and that's a result of very, very, very long-standing um, policies that have literally put barriers in place to those black people being able to live in better housing. Literally, you know, you you know, the Jim Crow laws. You can't live here. You have to sit at the back of bus. Now, it's not as obviously it's not as stark now in the U.S. and it's certainly not as stark in the U.K. 
but there are still those invisible, and they are quite invisible barriers, uh, particularly around access to power, and that might be the access to information, access to resources, you know, having a voice. And um, I think the problem is that because they're hard, because we're so used to this is how things are, pe and people have been brought up with the situation, this is just how it is, there is a belief and understanding that people from certain racialized minority groups are essentially, um, you know, are, it's, it's true that this is just how things are. These are people who just can't get on. It's something inherent about them when really it's something about the structures and the institutions that have engendered that. Psychiatry, and I talked about past, the thing about psychiatry is we know that um, all of, in, in psychiatry, the, the power differential between the, the um, doctor, the practitioner, and the patient is huge. In medicine, there is, there is a power differential between the doctor or practitioner and the patient. There always, there always has been. It's not so obvious with um, you know, cancer care or with um, orthopedic surgery or whatever, because you have more of a say if you don't, if you decide, I know I've got cancer, I know it says, you know, stage one, and that if you if you cut it out now or you treat it now, I'll be fine, but I don't want the treatment. And you can say no to that. It is different in psychiatry because actually if someone says, well, it's all very well you saying you want to kill yourself, but we think it's because you're depressed and uh, we're going to section you even though you just want to go home and uh, kill yourself. We're not going to let you do it. And some people would argue and, and do argue that actually if that person that you know, if that person really feels that there's no, they do have nothing to live for, then they should be allowed to take their life. And this is, and, and it becomes difficult because there's a, you know, and there's a big power differential in um, the fact is that if you have stage four cancer and you want to go to Dignitas, you can do that. You can go and take your life. But um, if you're depressed and you come across a psychiatrist, that psychiatrist might well section you. So. There is the, the very nature of psychiatry is it, 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 it if you like, um, it's a, it, it, it magnifies that power differential that already exists between doctor and patient. And I think sometimes the difficulty is that um, there isn't, uh, for, the, for the practitioner who's really busy, hasn't got time to think it all through because they've been thinking it through for years before anyway, there isn't as much mindfulness of how it feels for the individual who's at the end of that, because actually, especially when people, you know, are faced with, um, you know, being sectioned for the first time, it's shocking, I think, to discover that, guess what, somebody else can take away your autonomy like this. And some people are really good and have the time to talk through that, and some people don't do it so well. And in your response, you, especially with things like housing, you described using illustrations, real you know, clear ways in which racism kind of shows up in people's lives and the kind of relationship um, with presentations to mental health services is probably um, you know, pretty evident to most. In your description of, say, power, 
I wasn't sure whether or not you saw a racialized element in that, in kind of responding to that second part about whether you think that racism shows up in the way that the mental health system functions. And again, not just thinking of a discipline within it. So I think that, um, you know, mental health, so psychiatry, mental health are, are institutions within, um, you know, the, the society that in which we live and the society in which we live is uh, a society that minoritizes people. And um, it, it, there is, if you, whether we like it or not, there's a kind of prejudicial hierarchy. And um, I think that if you are a good practitioner, you are always aware of that. One of the risk, the, the, I think one of the difficult things and the challenges, if you like, is when it is, is always to have that in mind. Because if you, if you try and pretend, if, well, not necessarily pretend, but if you go about your business thinking that there aren't these institutional factors at play and there aren't these structural factors at play, then what you don't accept is that the person sitting in front of you, no matter what type of person they are, if the person sitting in front of you is a patient, then immediately there's a power differential. If that person happens to be female, there's an additional power difference that they've had all their lives. If that person happens to be black, there's another layer. So there's the intersectionality of that. And it can be complicated to think about and complex to think about, but you have to, and you have to think about it and you have to make, you have to, uh, if you like, make allowances for that and think through that more carefully because the person who's sitting before you has already been impacted by those structural and institutional factors. And what you might be doing within your practice is inadvertently making those things worse because you are, you are not taking into account the, um, the, those structural difficulties, those structural factors, and you are not necessarily fully understanding your own, uh, you know, how you yourself have been influenced by those, um, those, those, uh, long-standing institutional um, uh, that long-standing institutional discrimination and racism actually no, that's that's so, so um, helpful really really clear and I smile because um, you know I've been writing about this concept of toxic interaction theory for a number of years um, first appeared in um, my first book in 2008 nine um, and I've kind of been revising it and in fact I've got to a point now where I've got a lot more clarity about what I want to say, and I'm writing a document now, which is going to be launched on the 7th of um, April, um, which basically makes the point that you've just made, which is, you know, often it's that kind of inadvertent lack of acknowledgement or validating the reality of people's lived experience, you know, from their point of view, and to know that those prior experiences come into the room. So we end up reenacting power dynamics um, but because to us, it's not an issue, you know, not you and I, but as practitioners, it's not an issue. Um, we don't really talk about it. And mm. unless the person brings it into the space intentionally, we think, well, okay, it's not troubling because they haven't brought it there. And you, know, some people say to me, you know, oh, I'm not going to ask someone about their experience of racism. You know, I kind of just make sure that I'm very open. And if they want to talk about it, then, you know, I make sure 
that you know provide a you know context where they feel enabled to do that and it kind of puts the onus back on the other person and you yeah. know i often use the example that you know if we were concerned about suicidal ideation as practitioners we wouldn't just sit there and think right okay you know i've got this concern in the back of my mind but i'm not going to mention it um because i'm going to be person-led because we know the detriment that is caused by not bringing that into the space we've got a moral and ethical and professional obligation to do that and i think that racism and you know sexism and homophobia and all the other kind of forms of discrimination that are structural and interpersonal also mm. are of that standing that we need to bring it into the space yeah, it's interesting you say that actually i think it's a very good example about suicide but uh again probably about 30 years plus ago it used to be the case that you didn't ask about suicide because it was the belief was that if you asked about suicide it would put it put the idea into somebody's head and make them want to kill themselves so i don't know if you remember that i mean that's that that idea was still around when i started when i started so and that's a really good example then someone did the research said actually just the opposite in fact if you ask people they're going to tell you and you can intervene likewise again i remember really 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 well doing my part two of the big psychiatric board exams, you know, um, Royal Coast Psychiatrist. And it was only at that time, and, I, and this contrasts with doing my part one, which I think I'd done a, a couple of years earlier. Um, and in by part two, sexual abuse, you had to ask about it. Whereas when we were doing part one, I mean, it, it's not a clinical thing, but certainly around that time, you didn't ask about sexual abuse. What you did was you were open enough, and if, if the person disclosed something to you, then that was fine. But actually, by part two, there was so much debate about it. What we were expected to do was obviously be open. What we had to do is if someone want, if someone disclosed something, you'd have to, you'd actually have to, you know, write it down. You'd get into size. And it was all really a bit like um, getting consent for a, an HIV test when people, when we was, you know, people were doing it, you know, having to get consent before you know, it all changed again. But there's something about what happens over time and people's understanding. And I think... It's a work in progress. I think it's going to be the same kind of thing. It was before it was, you know, people's understanding was if someone's got a problem, they'll talk about it. We're now moving to the time when I say to all my trainees, have you asked them about their people's, you know, their experience of of racism, you know, because it's it's a form of emotional trauma. And in some cases, it's a form of true physical trauma. You know, this, this, it's really, really important that we start asking. It's not yet become standard practice. I think soon it will become standard practice. And the other thing very importantly that will become standard practice is people um, having training to understand that actually when the person comes into the room, it's not a level playing field. And even if even if you were talking to, um, you know, Lord Fauntleroy, who, um, you know, Lord Fauntleroy in that situation, who, uh, who, you know, has got 60 million pounds, and you know could buy your house 15,000 times over when that person walks into the room and they have a mental health problem and you're the practitioner that that power you are still in a position of power compared to them and if Lord Fauntleroy happens to be black doubly so that's yeah great thank you um very quickly, before I ask my next question, you mentioned about um, women and women's experiences. And, you know, I'm aware, particularly because of the work that I do, that there's a lot of priority given to the variations and 
probably inequalities that affect young black men and you know older mm. old black men do you think that the experience of black women or you know minoritized communities uh, the experiences are overlooked uh in po policy and public debate i do think that black women are uh more invisible mm. and um and it's it's interesting because I think that uh, I actually have to say it is it's it, I think it's a very complex area. I think that it it, it is a whole other podcast. Mm. Um, there is something about the fact that um, you know um, I don't know if people fully get this, but black women um, have, have also got high rates of detention, higher than expected. Um, black women are also more likely to be offered um, medication and not be offered psychological therapy, just like black men. Mm. Um, the, the rates of black men being in the higher end of services, in the secure services and forensic services, I think is, is much more obvious because, um, frankly, it's more costly. And, um, you know, uh, it, it, the, the cost of a, a secure bed is way more than the cost of someone being in a general unit who's informal and, you know, who, who's there voluntarily versus someone who's in a secure um, uh, psychiatric bed and they're there um, involuntarily. I think that has something to do with it. Um, I think that uh, black women there's a lot of there's evidence increasingly that clearly black women are suffering in silence. There's, there's a great deal of anxiety and depression in, in um, the black population and black female population in particular. Four times the rates in white British people. Wow. Uh, and that's what that was, you know, shown by Stephanie Hatch. But, um, you know, it's not something that is, is it's only really some, I mean, this, she did that work a few years ago. It's only something that's really becoming more and more um, talked about now. I mean, I talk about it every time I have a chance to get, but um, it, I think that it's it was it's all based on long-standing stereotyped assumptions about you know black people don't get depressed, they don't get anxious, they just get um, psychotic, and people's understanding of psychosis is is poor. People think it means being violent, and that very much fits with the narrative that black men are violent. So the focus is on black men who are violent, and they must be psychotic, and actually so many it just didn't so many so much of that is incorrect psychosis doesn't mean being violent it's not it's not you know it's rarely associated with violence psychosis literally just means being detached from reality and it's characterized by having delusions and hallucinations if you are mrs jones sorry about the joneses anyway mrs jones and you live at ten acacia avenue but you think you're the pope then you are definitely suffering with some kind of psychosis do we care no I've got to be honest with you, if you're happily going about your life, but you still happen to think you're the Pope and you're not bothering anybody, you know, you're looking after yourself, you're looking after your space, you're looking after, your, you know, you're getting on with your life, you're getting on with your job, you're not, um, you know, uh, spending all your money on, um, you know, trying to buy a Pope mobile or something and, you know, whatever, and ending up in massive debt and causing problems for yourself. No one's really going to mind. And there are plenty and plenty, plenty of people out there who are like that. It becomes a problem when you, you know, think I'm, you know, uh, the Pope and I've got to die to save the world. And you go to the top of the car park, try to throw yourself off. You know, that's when people get worried.
Thank you. Thanks, um, Lottie. And just um, so you know, I've uh, reached out to our dear colleague um, Dawn Edge to like you know have a podcast specifically on that issue about like you know are um, black women excluded from public and professional perception about these racialized inequalities. So um, yeah, hopefully our listeners will get a full episode on that. Oh, that I um, think that's well. excellent. I think that's really, really, really good. Um, it, maybe, maybe it's a question of it's the, you know, the loudest, it's, it's the cog that squeaks that gets the oil kind of thing, because it's just much more obvious with black men. But, uh, you know, it's, it, there are lots of complex things that are going on that mean that black women don't get the, um, black women don't get the uh, uh, input that's needed, definitely. Okay. Um absolutely fascinating and it's really like genuinely really brilliant having this conversation with you um but i want to go full circle because at the start i mentioned that today was the launch of the white white paper uh on the reform of the mental health act and um yeah we were both involved in it you more than i um do you think that legislation has the ability to you know kind of bring about some change in terms of the racial disparities um, you can, can the law achieve that? Well, it's interesting you to say that. Of course, I, I, I have to say yes, because I've just been involved in, you know, developing some reforms that um, I very, very much hope will make a difference. But I think the difficulty comes when if you if you don't understand the the complexities and the issues that underpin why they're racial disparities, then what you do is you just write a law that says don't discriminate full stop right which is actually what we have at the moment so the equality act 2010 says don't discriminate against people regardless of what their protected characteristics don't discriminate just don't do it mm. the difficulty with that is that what it doesn't do is account for all those people who don't realize that they're discriminating it doesn't account for uh, you know on an individual level because you know we know that people have unconscious bias it doesn't account for those institutional factors that have that have resulted in a um, in policies and procedures that are actually um, engendering some of the differences between people, like the housing project thing. People don't may not realise that those policies actually uh, impact, you know, create structural inequality, and. Um, Law, that, so a law that's just blanket, just don't do it, won't work for um, for factors that are much more, for, for things that are much more complex. What we try to do in the mental health act reform, and when we were, when we were doing the review and developing our recommendations, and Harry, you will know we had plenty of debate. We, you know, we looked at all, we looked at all the evidence as much as we could. Uh, we talked to huge, you know, loads and loads of different people, people with lived experience, uh, you know, carers and, um, and uh, service users. Uh, we talked to health professionals. We talked to people who haven't had experience, who had an you know, idea. We talked to academics, we talked to loads of different people. We asked people about all their different experience, took all the evidence together, and then we thrashed it out, you remember. And there, just to let everyone know, there was lots of debate. Um, it's, it's amazing actually we didn't beat each other up which is pretty good but um and we came from 
everyone in the room was from a different kind of background. So it was very disparate backgrounds. And we managed to reach a consensus because, and I think when I was thinking about this, why, how can we manage to reach consensus? And that's because there was just no getting away from the fact that it, this wasn't simply, this wasn't some genetic pro problem that black people have. That was pretty clear early on. This was not simply about, um, you know, all psychiatrists being racist. That was pretty clear early on as well. And it, it became clear that actually there were things happening early, very early in people's lives. And then we started to realize this is historical. This is, there's no doubt at all, this is historical. Those historical things have unfortunately resulted in structural and institutional processes that are so ingrained that it's really hard to unpick them. But it's only when you turn around and you say, oh my goodness me, these things exist that you can start to try and, um, uh, you know, it's not dismantling the whole structure of society, but it's, it's um, shifting the way we approach policies and procedures and therefore shifting the way that we approach, uh, it's shifting those structural barriers and, stru and structural factors. And so what we've done with the Mental Health Act reform is to make recommendations about laws that will focus not directly on right psychiatrists you have to stop you know you, stop, you can only section uh, 15 people in a year take your pick <laughs> that wouldn't be helpful instead what we've done is we've, we've actually focused our recommendations around um look you know hopefully that will be, you know be coming come into some of the rules and code and code of practices in the law that will actually engender structural change and I think that's where it's a bit more clever than just saying, right, psychiatrists don't section people because that wouldn't solve our problem because there'd still be institutional factors. And what would end up happening is that people who got really, 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 really unwell because actually black people get unwell as, as much as anybody else might end up unfortunately in prison instead of in hospital. That's brilliant. That's really, really great. Thank you so much, um, Lodi. And yeah, you know, some of what you said echoes um, the podcast I did with Craig Morgan. Uh, kind of, you know, obviously, once I mention his name, you know, we're going to be thinking about society and the kind of restructuring that is needed in society. Um, so thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Uh, definitely, we'll do this again. Great. That was great speaking with Ladi. Um, one of the great things about the way in which Ladi presents and thinks through challenges is the fact that uh, she's very precise and also seeks to ground what she says in an evidence base. Uh, it's striking, for example, the conversation about um, you know, what it means to be admitted for psychosis and you know, kind of really making that point that it isn't psychosis itself, but uh, levels of risk. And, you know, ideas like that are really helpful in the debates where sweeping generalizations are often used and it's great to find someone who is so keen to keep us grounded in the science but not to just rely on the science um, that is given prominence but also including the lived experiences of people who have their stories to tell um so it's great if you want to check in with any more of the seasoning the reasoning podcasts search seasoning the reasoning on your favorite platform to listen and uh, I hope you enjoy. Thank you.